0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The book of Exodus, known in Hebrew as Shmot, in chapter 12, verse 2 begins as follows. This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be for you the first months of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that at the tenth of this month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let them share one with the neighbor who dwells thereby. In proportion to the number of persons you shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blessing. A yearling male, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the fourteenth day of this month, and all the assembled congregation of the household of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight." They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that very same night, and they shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roasted, head, legs, entrails over the fire. You shall not leave any of it until the morning. This is how you shall eat it your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff at your hand, and you shall eat it huddly. It is a Passover offering to the Lord. For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt. I, the Lord... And the blood of the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for me. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be to you one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to God throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all times. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the very first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day of the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. This text describes the details of the rituals of surrounding the very first Pesach offering. On the 10th day of Nisan, each household was to take an unblemished one-year-old male and keep it until the 14th day of the month. On that day, the day preceding the exodus, they slaughtered the lamb at twilight and sprinkled its blood on the two doorposts and lintels of their homes. That night, the people roasted the meat and ate it with unleavened bread, which today we call matzah, and bitter herbs, which we call marur, None of it could be left over, and if by chance some was left over, it was burned in the morning. It was eaten in haste while the people were prepared to leave. According to this section of Exodus, the Pesach sacrifice was observed the following year and next only after the Israelites entered Canaan. It was then repeated for generations to come, except for sprinkling the blood on the doorposts, which was restricted to the section of Exodus 12 on the original night of Passover. The reason for this ritual, the sprinkling of blood on the doorposts, is explicit in the text. When I see the blood, I will pass over you so that no plague will destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt... The word Pesach, known in English as Passover, comes from the Hebrew word in Exodus 12, Pasachti, I pass over. In other words, the Passover holiday revolves entirely around the consumption of the Pesach offering. But one of the questions that has emerged from our close textual reading of Exodus 12 is why was it necessary to bring an offering at that time? Verses 12 through 13 imply that the sprinkled blood enabled God to distinguish between the firstborn of the Jews who were spared and those of the Egyptians who were killed. But of course, this raises for the modern reader serious philosophical questions. Did God need a visible sign in order to distinguish between Jews and Egyptians? Does not God see and know everything without our assistance? Secondly, according to Exodus 8, verses 21 through 22, Pharaoh granted permission to the Jews to offer a sacrifice to God, but only in the land of Egypt. Moses argued that this would not be a good idea, since, I quote from the text, if we sacrifice that which is untouchable to the Egyptians before their very eyes, will they not stone us? End of quote. The Egyptian religion represented deities in animal form, so they made sense for the Jews to worship their god outside the land of Egypt so as not to anger the Egyptians. But maybe this is exactly the point. The willingness of the Jews to sacrifice an Egyptian god, the lamb or goat, on this night of Passover and display its blood on the doorposts in the midst of the land of Egypt was a clear demonstration of the Jews' faith and confidence in God. This demonstration of their faith made them worthy of divine protection from the ensuing plague, not placing blood on the lintel to identify themselves for a God who would know where they lived, but placing blood was a statement of their covenantal commitment to God. This approach avoids the philosophical problem that emerges from the first generally accepted explanation. God did not need a visual aid to determine who lived in the homes of the Israelites. We, the Israelites, needed to demonstrate our commitment to God by defying the Egyptians and sacrificing their God. In addition to commemorating God's protection during the Exodus, offering the Korban Pesach, the paschal sacrifice on an annual basis in the mishkan and ultimately in beta mikdash the temple may have been an attempt to recapture the complete faith of the jews at the time of the exodus for subsequent quest- generations of jews the passover offering served to reinforce their faith in god and strengthen their religious convictions, despite the spiritual and physical obstacles they encountered to do so. Perhaps the commandment to offer Korban Pesach annually in all generations suggests that the Exodus, which began on the night of Pesach, is not only a celebration of our faith in God and God's protection over us, but is also a celebration of the birth of the covenantal relationship between God and the Jewish people. One needs to remember that prior to the book of Exodus, the covenantal relationship established in the book of Genesis is between Abraham, an individual, and Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, their families. There's no indication of a peoplehood of Israel until the book of Exodus and the exodus from Egypt. The best way to celebrate such an occasion, the covenantal relationship between God and the Jewish people, is to strengthen the bonds of family and community, while simultaneously strengthen the bond between the family and God. By repeating this ritual in future generations— The Torah may have wanted us to reaffirm our commitment to our families and link us to the extended Jewish family, past and present. These ideas that I've shared with you relate to the biblical Pesach holiday. But since the destruction of the temple, we do not offer sacrifices. What became of the Biblical Pesach celebration in post-Temple times. Well, that, of course, was preserved in the Seder that many of you know about. But I want to skip the Seder and call your attention to other parts of the Passover observance that is called to mind in that section of Exodus. Namely, eating matzah, eliminating leaven, known in the Hebrew as chametz, and rejoicing on the festival. And to do that, I want to read to you a small section from the book Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. So this is Leviticus chapter 23. And I'm going to share with you verse four through eight. If you're following along, it's verse four through eight of chapter 23. These are the set times of the Lord. The sacred occasions which you shall celebrate each at its appointed time. In the first month and the 14th day of the month at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering to the Lord. That sounds like an exact quote from Exodus 12. But now listen carefully. And on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread. That sounds as if there are two holidays the feast on the 14th day of the Paschal offering, and the feast of the unleavened bread on the 15th day. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you shall celebrate a sacred occasion. You shall not work at your occupations. Seven days, you shall make offerings by fire to the Lord. The seventh day shall be a sacred occasion, and you shall not work at your occupation." The text indicates, as I've already noted, that there appears to be two separate holidays. The first, called Pesach, falls on the 14th of Nisan. The second holiday is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Hag Hamatzot, and it begins on the 15th day of Nisan and lasts for seven days. In other words, what we call Pesach the seven-day holiday beginning on the 15th day of Nisan, the Torah calls the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The distinction between the two holidays may have become blurred once the temple was destroyed and the central feature of the biblical Pesach, the Pesach offering, was no longer available. So let's think about that for a moment. Why would the Torah ask us to have a holiday totally devoted to avoiding unleavened bread? We'll turn back to our foundational story, Exodus 12. But instead of the beginning, let's turn to the end of the chapter. Verses 33, 34, and 39. This may surprise you. The Egyptians urged the people on, impatient to have them leave the country. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the Israelites took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders, The Israelites had done Moses' bidding and borrowed from the Egyptians' objects of gold and silver. Chapter 30, verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt. So this was in the middle of the desert. For it was not leavened since they had driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. These texts that I've just shared with you discuss the events of the exodus. Frightened by the enormity of their suffering during the ten plagues, the Egyptians not only allowed the Jews to go, they forced them out. Thus, it seems the Jews left in great haste. As a result, the Torah explains that the dough they had brought with them did not have time to leaven or rise. Therefore, their only source of sustenance was unleavened cakes. A very strange experience if you think about what we are normally told during the reading of Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, it says, you shall eat it hurriedly, as a Passover offering, and you shall consume it all on the 14th, and you shall eat unleavened bread up until the 14th. So it appears that the Israelites had time to take their unleavened dough with them, and they did not eat it while they were in Egypt, but they ate it when they had left Egypt. The Torah explains that the dough that they brought with them did not have time to leaven. Therefore, it was sustenance for them in the desert, similar perhaps to the manna or the quails that are discussed later in Exodus. The requirement to eat matzah, unleavened bread, and the prohibition against eating chametz, leaven products, are thus usually explained as tangible reminders of the unusual circumstances in which the Jews departed Egypt. By eating matzah during the days of Passover, Jews are asked to recall the exodus and appreciate their freedom more importantly however the eating of the matzah is a symbol of god who in his compassion for the jews and in his desire to fulfill the promise to the ancestors redeemed us from slavery to freedom from torture and oppression to joy and independence thus the matzah symbolizes not simply the haste by which we left egypt but it symbolizes the exodus in general and again the covenantal relationship with god the seven-day feast of unleavened bread is an extended celebration of the relationship between the israelite people and god And the eating of unleavened bread is the physical representation of that symbol. It is, of course, not difficult to understand how the early Christians and later the church transformed the matzah and unleavened bread into a wafer known as the host, and during the service of communion, also established a covenantal relationship with their understanding of Jesus and God. Similar symbols, similar intentionality, but explained very differently. Now, all of that, would be very nice if we didn't have this very unusual text in the Talmud. You may remember that the Talmud is a compilation of teachings written between the third and sixth centuries of the Common Era, mostly written by rabbis in Babylonia, and codified or redacted in the two later centuries. This is from a section about prayer known as Barachot. It reads as follows, and I quote, After concluding his prayer, Rabbi Alexandri would say, Master of the universe, it is surely known to you that we desire to do your will. But what is holding us back? Why don't we completely do that which you ask us to do? And the rabbi answers his own question by saying, "The yeast in the dough and the subjugation to the nations. May it be your will to deliver us from their hands so that we may again perform your statutes with a perfect heart." Rabbi Alexandri prayed to be spared from two forces that were preventing the fulfillment of God's commandment, the subjugation of foreign powers and the yeast in the dough. The former is an obvious obstacle. After all, when decrees prohibited the observance of Shabbat or the study of Torah has happened at different times in Jewish history, and certainly Rabbi Alexandri knew it, Um, of Greeks who prohibited the study of Torah and Romans who prohibited the study of Torah. But what is the meaning of the second obstacle, the yeast in the dough? Well, of course, that becomes important to us at this time of year because yeast is that which is removed from the leavening process and unleavened bread The major symbol of Passover is bread without yeast. The later rabbinic commentator suggested that yeast in the dough refers to the evil impulse known in the Torah as Yetzir Hara, and this is a rabbinic tradition that associates sin with an internal force called the Yetzir Hara, which is constantly tempting us to do evil. And here in the Talmud, the dough refers to the heart, and the yeast that causes the dough to ferment is the Yetzer Hara. Thus, from the sixth century on, chometz, leavening, is often understood allegorically as the evil impulse that rises within us to lead us astray. Rabbi Alexandria prayed for the removal of both the external threat, the evil nations, as well as the internal threat, the evil impulse represented by the yeast in the dough. Now, this interpretation may lead us all to understand why it was so important symbolically in preparation for Passover for members of the Jewish community to cleanse their homes of all yeast products, for all products identified as chumitz. In fact, it's not unusual for people to um, have a spring cleaning in which all of their home, wherever they might have had a sandwich or pasta or food, which we think of as having risen, is cleansed. Sometimes even garages are cleansed because people have brought in groceries. Now, this may seem a bit obsessive, and I would admit there are people who seem to be obsessive about cleansing the home of leavening and products that are leavened. But if we accept Rabbi Alexandre's um, allegorical interpretation, the cleansing that takes place in the spring is a cleansing of our soul as we prepare to leave Egypt for the march that will eventually bring us to Mount Sinai and the acceptance of the covenant with God as a nation. We need to cleanse and be prepared This fits in with the description in the text which says that when the Israelites were at the base of Mount Sinai, they refrained from sexual intercourse for three days, they washed their clothes, they prepared themselves ritually for the revelation. On Passover, we remove the leavening. We cleanse our hearts to prepare ourselves for the redemption from Egypt. It is, of course so easy to lose sight of these spiritual interpretations as we prepare for the excitement of the seder the big meal the retelling of the story how to entertain the children that will attend but it is of course important to try and understand the origins of the holiday and their essential religious meaning, and separate those symbolic meanings from the mere practicalities that have um, been part and parcel of our lives. And let me end this morning's conversation by reminding us about what Exodus 12:16 says. You shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day. You shall observe the feast um, throughout your land. It will be a joyous occasion. The text informs us that the prohibition against the work on the Feast of Unleavened Bread and declares it a holy day. And we understand in Jewish tradition that um, The Torah states, no work at all shall be done, only what every person to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. We understand in the Torah you shall rejoice in your festival with your son and daughter, and your male and female slave, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and your communities. And we understand from Jewish tradition that there is no joy without eating and drinking. The text and the later commentators made it clear that the Passover celebration, the first night of Passover known today as the Seder, would be a joyous one. And that is why throughout the 2,000 years of history, since the millennium began, we celebrate this evening with a large meal, with a festive retelling of the story of the Exodus, and with our families gathered around us. This is why we believe that the Israelites will have a new redemption. The celebration of Passover, the annual commemoration of Exodus, seems to be all ritual. Yet reliving the Exodus directly translates into our understanding of our values and our belief in a covenantal relationship with God. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garton. You can hear a rebroadcast of this episode on iTunes as a podcast or on the CHRI website. Shalom and good morning.